All right, hi everybody, and welcome to another Robcast. And today I have a special honored guest, Dr. Neuroscientist, Dr. Lynn Paul. Hello, Dr. Lynn Paul. <laughs> hi, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I met Dr. Lynn Paul when I was 18, right? Yeah. We met in Chicago when we were 18. Yes. So I go way back with the good doctor. And then we didn't see each other for 20 years and then ran into each other at a show yeah. of some mutual friends who were performing. And I said, what are you up to? And she said, I, I'm now a neuroscientist. <laughs> I think that's how it went down, right? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, you're coming on the Robcast. <laughs> so probably the first place, how do you become a neuroscientist? And what does that even mean? And how did you, how did you get into this? How I got into it is not how you typically get into it. Okay. Um, people who go into neuroscientists into neuroscience get graduate degrees in neuroscience. They're usually uh, undergrads in biology, sometimes psychology, depending. Um, there are also neuroscientists that get into it from other humanities or social sciences, like econ and yeah, such. I did a degree in clinical psychology at Fuller, which yep. you and I were also at Fuller together, um, and was interested in clinical neuropsychology, so understanding how people's brains work, how they think, uh, assessing them cognitively. But through the course of it, I realized what I really liked was research, and so I and I found a really unique, interesting research population that I felt like was my call, and so that's just what I've done. And so research on the brain is pictures, it's um, images, it's tests. How do, you, how do you study the brain? You study it by observing behavior um, and a lot of measuring reaction time, measuring responses to things. We also now use eye tracking so we can look at where someone looks at a picture, like where their gaze is going. And then, of course, the newer edge is brain imaging and looking at the parts of the brain that are more active or that are different sizes and correlating that with behavior. Okay, so I'm listening to you. What's happening in my brain? Or people are listening to this podcast. What part of their brain is working harder? Well, the... At the most basic level, the auditory system is, is activated. By the way, when you talk about the most basic level, it will be the most advanced level for us. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the most fundamental level? Yes. I mean, you're, you're hearing, so your auditory system is activated, and it's deciphering what these words are. And then the parts of the brain that are making sense of the words have to combine them into sentences and ascribe meaning to them. And... From that, we, you relate it to your history. Is this familiar? Is this not familiar? Um, all of this happens, of course, in split seconds, and you don't even know it's happening. So in a split second, without even consciously trying to do it, a sound is entering my ear, but it is triggering uh, like um, a translation of whatever it is into what it means, which is then connecting it with memory. Yes, and your own experience and understanding and associations and that's part of how we make sense of it. Um, and it's then laying down new memories and, new and reinforcing associations. And all of this is happening all the time. All the time. And 
Um, so when I think about the fact that it's, what's happening to my brain when I think about what you just said? It's probably a lot of frontal lobe activation because you're, you're putting together concepts and you're doing it in abstraction. So then you're thinking about it. It's not that you're sensing it. So there are the parts of the brain that respond to external sensory information and make sense of it. If you're thinking about it, you're not taking sensory input in. You're generating it from your memory, from your associations of our conversation. And then you're thinking about what you've activated within your brain. And can you watch a brain do that? Do that? It doesn't quite... Yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we don't, when we do functional imaging, um, so I do functional MRI, yeah, you get really cool pictures that you show in Time Magazine and whatever, and they're very cool and pretty colored. Um, but that doesn't, that tells us there's active areas. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell us a lot of detail about that individual and how they're functioning. Um, it's a lot more meaningful when you have a whole group of people and you say, oh, for all of them, when they're doing this, these are the areas of the brain that are more activated. Yeah. Or we do compu- uh, statistical modeling and can say these areas of the brain are both active and they're active in a way that is correlated. So it shows that they're communicating with each other. Got it. Okay, so you start studying the brain. Yeah. And you stumble into some, a condition, an abnormality. Mm-hmm. You're looking at patterns, you're looking at behaviors, and you find something. Actually, no, I'm sitting next to somebody in class, and they have something they're reading. I ask what they're reading. It's an abstract for a grant that one of the, other, one of the professors is putting in. And she said, oh, and he's looking for a graduate student to work on this project. And I needed somebody to be my advisor and I needed a project and it sounded vaguely interesting. So I acted like I knew what it was talking about and I love got it. him to take I me on. How, I love how many people I meet are doing something they love. They feel like this is what I'm here to do. And when you trace their story back far enough, they're like, I just faked it. Exactly. I, I, I one of my first jobs, I, the, the, the amount of things in the interview that suddenly I was able to do, yes. I'd never done before. <laughs> I faked so much. Yes, I can do that. Sure. Just, sure. Yeah. I'll figure that out. So you literally had an opportunity to, you needed something. You say yes to this. And what was the project? So uh, Dr. Warren Brown at Fuller had been studying the corpus callosum, the part of the brain that connects the hemispheres. And he had two teenage boys who were born without that part of the brain that he had been studying how the electrical currents in their brain functioned. And how did he find them? How do you find two teenage boys that don't have this? Uh, someone knew he was studying the corpus callosum and uh, one was a doctor. Yeah. People that ha- had found these individuals or There's had diagnosed them. There's a corpus callosum community or there are experts. There is now. There, there is now. <laughs> there is now. So Back if you then, don't have this corpus callosum, Colosum. Colosum, yeah. yes. Um, Colosum enough. Um, what, so what does that mean? What, what are you missing or how would you, what's, how does that affect behavior? Um, well, I think one of the best analogies is this is the largest band of fibers in the brain. It 
it's connecting the hemispheres. It's allowing a lot of information to transfer really quickly and really efficiently. So let's say I told you you had to get from Laguna to where you live now, and you couldn't use freeways. Yeah. We're closing your door. It's quieter now. now. Could you do that? Yes. Would it be quick? Would it be easy? Would it be? No. Got it. So these are people whose brains have to organize without this huge band of fibers to do the connecting. And there are other smaller ones that do it, but it means their whole system is, is working harder. Mm -hmm. It tends to be slower, especially when things happen really quickly. They don't keep up with it real well. Um, Would someone like me notice it if I was interacting with somebody who was missing? Probably not, not unless they had other brain problems. Oh. But what you would notice is maybe the person seems younger than their age. They're a little socially naive. Um, and after a while, you'd start going, something's off. <laughs> and what's off is that literally some fibers are missing at the in the center of the brain. Yeah. Two... 200 million fibers. Oh, okay, I mean, some. Some. Big. <laughs> so big when you're dealing with the brain, yeah. and it's like, well, this thing is missing. It's not just this thing. It's like 200 trillion million, million fibers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it is like taking the freeway system out of LA as far as functionally what it would do. Yeah. We, yeah, we would, oh my word. So <laughs> um, you start studying this? You're a So So what happened is uh, Dr. Brown, this is a cool story. He is a brain person, an experimental psychologist, but at some point he brought together the parents of these two young men and sat and took notes, because that's what scientists do. We sit and listen and observe. And he realized the real story was their social problems. They both were getting into trouble socially. They were teased. They were alienated, blah, blah, blah. And so he was looking for a clinical psychology student to help him figure out how do I test social functioning? And this is the early 90s. It was very beginning of the decade of the brain. Social cognitive neuroscience, which is what I do, was not even on the map. And so we're trying to figure out how do you test empathy? How do you test what we now call theory of mind? And we had two participants. By the time I graduated in 98, we had 14. It was huge numbers. So this is like the Wild West of oh. brain science. Yeah. Like people literally have never attempted to learn this stuff no it was very much the cutting edge of what we're trying to figure out about how the brain works was that exciting oh totally and because in human history we've never learned some of this yeah it's totally oh, si uh, totally amazing. exciting and i mean anybody who took ap intro psych learned about roger sperry and the split brain subjects where they cut the corpus callosum anybody who took intro to psych and paid attention <laughs> I sat next to you in those classes. You paid attention some of the time. <laughs> I'm sure of it, right? I don't know. Um, okay. So, keep going, I'm sorry. So, yeah. <laughs> Sperry's work was they cut the corpus callosum for, on people that had um, intractable epilepsy and it was a treatment, but that's how we learned all the things about what the right hemisphere does and the left hemisphere. And we, we opened up a skull. Opened a skull. On a living person. Cut the... Like with scissors? A knife? A knife. Scalpel. Cut it. 
and separated the two spheres of the brain so they weren't connected. This was done on a live person, and then we watched, scientists watched the live person to see what would happen. Yeah. What year was this? Uh, this the surgeries, well, Sperry won his Nobel Prize for it, I think, in 68? Publications were starting 65, 66, 68, and then uh, early 70s was the research. And he was working, he was doing research at Caltech. The surgeries were done at USC by Joe Bogan. But it was for a very clear medical purpose, and it, mm-hmm. it stopped the seizures. But then it taught us tons about the brain. Did this person had to have consented? Oh, yeah. You're going to take apart my skull. You're going <laughs> to separate the two spheres. And then you're going to watch me. And we're going to see what happens. Because they're like, if it gets rid of the seizures, I'm um, bonus. Well, yeah. Be- and actually, the research wasn't the point. The point is, I'm having seizures that are lasting for half hour, hour, you know, days. I can't do anything. Yeah, so any help. Any help. Oh, my word. Okay. So that was all in the background. I knew this research had happened, and then this interesting population that's born without that part of the brain is now in front of me, and nobody knows anything about them. Nobody knows what this causes, what to expect in these young men. And I got to be a part of starting to unpack that that set of questions. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so fun. I had never, I just had never thought that there are moments like with the brain where you're into a totally new space. Oh, all and the time. You're, you're stumbling into numbers and data and images and research and behavior and studies, and you're looking at each other like we don't have like a file where we can see what other people learned about this. No, we're we have, making the file. Yeah, well, we have some information. We have enough that, like, okay, they found this in their three people they studied. Well, now we've got 20 people, and we're going to make sure that we're finding the same thing, and then we're going to look beyond that. And we're going to look at the brain and see what's active at that time. I mean, there are definitely questions we're answering that no one's ever looked at. Wow. Okay, so then what happens? Okay, so I work on this project through graduate school and get to know some of the families. And uh, when I graduated, by then I was pretty hooked. Mm-hmm. Um, by then I cared about the people and I... I think the high of being able to do something scientifically interesting and something personally meaningful, because mm-hmm. this is a group of families that are desperate for information. And as the internet really grew, then you have more families connecting with each other, and it becomes evident that this is a big group of people out there that need help. And they needs help. What is the exact issue they have? They have a, a, well, there are three ways that this is typically diagnosed. Either something happens in your life and you end up with a brain scan and the radiologist is in the other room and goes, oh, crap. Wow, that's funky. Which I've heard those stories, literally. You don't want to ever have that happen. Technical language. <laughs> yeah. Oh, crap, crap, that's funky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Come look at this. <laughs> um, so there are these adults that would get this diagnosis. Then there were young kids who were starting to have problems in school, having behavioral issues, maybe look like they were having seizures or something, and they get a scan. And then there are people that were diagnosed in utero. So you can diagnose it from an ultrasound. 
From an ultrasound, you can tell about the brain? Yeah. How? Well, you see it. I mean, yeah, that's okay. what an ultrasound <laughs> does. <laughs> yes, yes. Just, but, but I've seen ultrasounds, it looks like, like a bag of, you, you know what I mean, pears and grapefruits. And <laughs> right. she's like, oh, look, it's a boy. And I think, I, seriously, that's a boy? Um, but in that round head, which is one of the larger parts of that little... You, you can, from that, just that black and white image, you mm-hmm. can tell and... Well, and a lot of times people that are born without this part of the brain, the ventricles, the space areas in their brain are large. And so one of the things they're looking for is, does this fetus have hydrocephalus? Do they have extra water on their brain? So those large mm. ventricles make them stop and look more closely. These days, the the uh, clarity of ultrasound. Incredible, huh? Yeah, you can diagnose it. So then you've got families who know, I've got a child who's got this weird brain. Let me Google it. Let me look it up. Oh, no, there's nothing. Where's the book? Who are the people that can tell me what to expect? Oh. So we get, you know, now I get contacts from around the world of families saying, what do I, what do, I do? What can I expect? What's going to happen with this child? And what's the name of the condition? It is a genesis of the corpus callosum. So A, meaning not, genesis, yeah. meaning developed, developed of the corpus callosum, or dysgenesis, so it's malformed. A the cor- genesis of the corpus callosum. And you gradually are accumulating data and knowledge and insight about this condition. Yeah, so what to understand the behaviors that are associated with the condition, you got to get a group of people who have this condition and not a bunch of other things. That would sort of make the, the results then, a little murky. Yeah. And then look at what do they have in common. How is their behavioral profile similar to each other? Because parents' main question is, all right, what if this is my kid and what if this is the condition? Because I want to parent them like I parented all the other kids, but it's not working, and I can't tell why. We can't fix it, but if we can give you guidance on how to help this child learn and function the best that they can. Did you name this condition? No. no. So somebody had named it. Yeah. How many, but people ha- a lot of people have this. Uh, about one in 3,000. So. And you, you are gradually becoming the world expert on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that... How old are you at this point? At that point, I was 28, 29. So you're 28. <laughs> you're studying the brain. You're identifying this condition, which... which The behaviors that go with the condition. The behaviors that go with the condition. And you're getting amassing some knowledge and expertise on this. And the more you look around, the more you're realizing you're the one. And so people start from all over the world, start contacting you saying, help us, my kid. This is my kid. And when it's our kid... We want help. We want help. Right. So... And I'm doing this in collaboration still with my mentor from, from Fuller. But part of what was unique is because I was a clinician, I also had the, the skill set and the knowledge to help the families and do intervention and things that were beyond neuroscience. So I could be both therapist. So you're looking at like the pictures and images of the brain, but then you're also helping them as a therapist Let's, deal with the condition like yeah. in everyday life. Yeah. So when I graduated in 98, the next summer was the first time that the families who had found each other in the United States, families who were dealing with this condition, they got together and did a family gathering at an Easter Seals camp and had me come 
and uh, they've been alone. All these families have thought they're alone. They haven't had other families to talk to. Well, there was a family network. There were a couple mm-hmm. parents who had one of these children who had started finding other families and connecting them. And they did it all from their dining room table. They answered phone calls from people around the world in the middle of the night. They typed up the the directory of family information. So they were they were doing it guerrilla style to connect families. <laughs> but they don't have an ex, like a doctor or an expert or Well, they were actually they both happened to be um, developmental psychologists. Oh, got it. Okay. Which is part of why they tuned into it and realized there's something wrong with our kid. Yeah. Um, and the doctors kept saying, "Ah, oh, you're just bored." You're looking for something. There's nothing there. And oh. finally did a brain scan. And the mom was like, I told you something was different about this one. And they discovered there really is. Yeah. He was missing this huge part of his brain. Literally missing a part of the brain. Yeah. And the parents are saying there's something wrong with my kid. And they're being told, no, you're just making it up. Right. Your kid's not that special. Whatever. Exactly. <laughs> not exactly. that special, special. <laughs> yeah. And then they take the kid in. Oh, actually, the kid is missing a significant part of the brain. Right. And so then they connect with all these other families. They start this family network. And they bring together all the families at the camp. And there I am in all of my 29-year-old wisdom or 28-year-old wisdom. And you teach them about this? You talk? Yeah. I explain what the condition is. I talk about what we've learned in the research thus far. And are they just blown away? Yeah. They're pretty, they're pretty excited to start to have information. And so then two years later, there was a young mom in Southern California who had a baby with the condition. It was like, I need to have information and I want the experts and damn it, I'm putting together my own conference and we're going to have speakers. And she just charged ahead and we had our first real conference and there was more than just me. There were other speakers and we sat around with the the parents that were there, I think there were a hundred people at, in attendance. People came in from around the U.S. and talked about how do we move from this guerrilla style, all on, burden on one family, mm-hmm. family network, to a sustainable, scalable organization that can help the families. And so the next year, she and I started with help of a few other people, a nonprofit for the families to connect and extraordinary. And at this point you're like late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, early thirties. And she and I laugh all the time. We had no clue what we we're doing. <laughs> we're two just gutsy but young see, this girls. Is, this is what fascinates me. Everybody I you're a neuroscientist. My friends who are doing things like you're doing, they're just sort of at the very, very top of their game, everybody I know at the top of their game is basically like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I mean, we're just sort of, I just sort of stumbled into this and I just kept trusting my instincts and just stayed curious and I worked hard and... That's it. All you stay curious. You follow the questions. You follow what's interesting. And my... So I finished my postdoc at UCLA and my mentor, I was doing research and testing in epilepsy, and she kept giving me job opportunities you know, I can connect you here, you can run your own lab, blah, blah, blah. And I would say, but I got to keep doing my research. At some point, she literally said to me, I'm giving up on you. I don't know why you're doing this. This is never going to amount to anything. No one's paying attention to this condition. You're off at a seminary doing this. 
I'm whatever your choice. Because <laughs> oh. it wasn't a big condition. Nobody's funding it. I don't have. So I finished graduate school and I've got to do. I became a therapist because I needed to support myself. So that you could do. So I could do my research. This is like the research equivalent of the least of these. I don't know. Like the what I would do for the least of these. Like these are the people who are sort yeah. of forgotten. Okay, yeah. It's not a very sexy fundraising no. call. No. It's not, doesn't have a lot of... Nobody's so made it. people suffering over in the corner with this particular mm-hmm. missing part of the brain. Mm-hmm. And there isn't really anybody giving them light or help or guidance. And you know you just need to do it. And this, your mentor or advisor is saying, but you could like, like make a lot of money over at this lab. <laughs> exactly. And be a really big deal. And and, like, but I have to help these people. Yeah. So I need to figure out how to pay my bills so that I can do this thing I'm here to do. Yeah. And I'm pretty much still there. And <laughs> so now you're another decade, away. 15 years later, you're just working away. Yeah. And what's got you curious now? Um... Well, now we have we have access to uh, through the internet, through technology. We have the ability to pull together the researchers. You know, there's a group in Brazil. There's a couple people in Rio. There's some people in San Francisco. There's a group in Melbourne and a group in Brisbane and somebody in Paris. And we all got together last year and brainstormed about how do we combine all of our data. How do we start to feed all of this information to each other, because we're each researching slightly different things, how do we become a big team around the world studying this condition? Because we all obviously care about this cause. And it's just really exciting, because we have geneticists, we have brain specialists who look at brain anatomy, we have genetic counselors, we have clinicians, we have fetal pathology, so all of the babies that are aborted or who die from this condition, we can look at their brains and learn from them. Whoa, that's a stunning array. It's a huge, and trying to translate across not just the languages, but the fields of interest, was it was very entertaining. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, because it's, it's cross-disciplinary, and then it's just language barrier, and then it's just exactly, and then it's these very precise terms. Yeah. About the brain. And then you, together you're all sort of going where no one's gone before in terms of understanding the brain. Exactly. And creating an international research consortium that these exist, but they exist for autism. They exist for... You the know, big ones. The big names. The big money situation. Okay. Conditions. And, and we're sitting over here saying, there are a lot of people with this, and this is really important, and it can help us understand autism and all these other developmental conditions, but nobody cares. Except us. And so we'll just keep trying until somebody supports us to do this. Because they're families that need it. Oh, it's so inspiring. Because I always, when I talk to people about what is it that gets you up out of bed in the morning, that calling, I think calling is overrated and curiosity is underrated. Mm-hmm. And uh, when people are like, what am I supposed to do with my life? What is it that would get you out of bed? What is it the thing that you would do <laughs> if all of the guarantees of results were taken away. Money, so, attention, funding, whatever. What is the thing you're like, yeah, but I'd still do this. My husband asked me last summer, if you didn't have to earn income at all, what would you do? And I'm like, 
Well, pretty much what I'm doing, except I might not teach another class and I might take away a few things. I wouldn't do research on other conditions. Yeah, you would just do this. I would just do this. And he's like, you would seriously just do what you're doing. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I just get rid of the stuff that pays me right now because I don't want to do that. Yeah, but you have to to pursue this. Yeah. Extraordinary. Now, when it comes to the human brain, mm -hmm. like how much do we know? On a scale of 1 to 10, how much do we know? You don't even know what the 10 is, though. That's a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> we really, we know a ton, but we kind of don't know much. Oh, exactly. There's so much to learn. There's so much to learn. And really, the, I think one of the cutting edges is psychiatry. We start getting into behaviors. We get into behavioral syndromes. And there's been this real push on let's understand the genetics. But I think there's going to be information in between because now we know that the genetics behind schizophrenia or autism or even this condition, they overlap a lot. They're really complicated. Are we going to get to the point where we can test a fetus and say there's the genetic profile and we know how they're going to behave behaviorally? Behavior is too complicated. No. Mm. And now we know that your life experiences change the way your genes are expressed. So they actually change the activation of genes when they're activated and what they do. So it's a really so, complicated picture. So even the idea of, oh, well, I'm just hardwired like this is yes a lot more fluid. Than, it's a lot more fluid. And somebody, well, this is just, well, I guess this is just how I'm made. You're like, well, it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah. There's capacities. I mean, there's certainly people that are limited in what they can do, um, but are we stuck with? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We shape it through our life. So, so at the very, very fresh edge of brain science mm -hmm. is just a bunch of answers that have just plunged you into a bunch of They're just new questions. New questions. And that's what science is. You, you follow the question. And you come up with this answer, and it's all statistical, and you're like, I've got to test it, and I've got to retest it, and I want to make sure that I'm, I'm not telling people something that isn't true. But that makes me wonder, why does this happen if that happens? So then there's the next question, and you go. And it's follow the curiosity. Now, what got me up in the morning a lot of times was the pictures of the kids over my desk or the contacts from the parents. Because, mm. yeah, I'm not getting really any reward for this, except the, the fun of the puzzle. But so helping, I think it's both. It's the call and the curiosity. Yeah. And you were doing this in a seminary, some of this research. Yeah. <laughs> What's the connection? <laughs> um, well, Fuller has an APA-accredited clinical psychology program. And a surprising number of our students end up focusing on neuropsychology, so testing cognitive abilities, learning, those types of things. And like I said, Dr. Brown was an experimental psychologist interested in this area. Um, so it, it's a solid lab. He yeah. and I were at a conference in Italy when I was in grad school, and he was one of the invited speakers for talking about the corpus yeah. callosum. Talking about, come here a lecture on the corpus callosum. I'm there. Yes. So it's a, you know, it's a good academic institution. Now, where I ended up at 
kind of stuck is, again, I'm at a seminary, so getting research funding was limited, and the cutting edge of neuroscience was imaging and methods that we don't have equipment for. Mm -hmm. So in 2004, I, here's another providential moment. I'm trying to figure out what do I do with my life? Where do I go? Where can I do this work? And a friend says, well, is there somewhere nearby where you could do this? And I said, well, Caltech would be great, knowing that it's down the street but not knowing anything about it. And she says, here's your pitch. You've got this fascinating population. No one else is studying it. Such, and you want to go and take your population. You want them to teach you how to do these methods. She gives me the whole spiel. And a couple days later, I look online, and the first name that comes up is Adolphs because it begins with A. And he had done his postdoc with Damasio in Iowa, which was a big deal, and was doing stuff on social cognitive neuroscience. And I read his profile briefly, and I'm like, well, that sounds about right. And I picked up the phone. And I said what she told me to say, and he said, let's have lunch. And so two days later, we had lunch, and I went in in full Lynnness and asked him all sorts of questions about his life and his family and all sorts of things and told him about my re work. And then I go back to my advisor, to Warren, and I say, what would you think if I went to Caltech? And he's like, oh, well, you couldn't get into Caltech. Caltech's it, the big leagues. It's MIT. That's like the MIT of the West yeah. Coast. Yeah. That's, there's nowhere to go from there. That's no. it. That's it. Got it. And he's like, well, that would... And I said, well, I just had lunch with Ralph Adolphs. And Who's he, a legend. And he pulls the paper off the stack next to him and says, this Ralph Adolphs? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, apparently. Because I hadn't really read anything he'd written, and I hadn't prepared. I just knew I was supposed to call him, and I did. And a week later, he had me come back, and he told me I've got funding to for you to start up and here's your office and when can you be here oh i love it <laughs> i love it but i had just taken a position running the clinic at fuller so i couldn't be there for i had to do it part-time for a while yeah because i was still doing therapy see it's also interesting to me how many people when i talk ask them how did you get to where you are doing what you're doing there are these moments when they leaped they mm -hmm. like went to they had the like guts to just get the lunch and make the pitch and you have nothing to lose and had i known more about who he was you would have i would have panicked right and knowing ralph as i know him now that wouldn't have gone well it was the fact that i was totally myself i was sincere i was direct and i couldn't have gotten a better mentor anywhere i mean he's amazing he's been wonderful to work with top quality, honest, no stickiness, no behind the scenes ego issues. He's a scientist. He's curious. Fascinating. It's like you had lunch with the manager for the Yankees and you're like, I can play ball. I can seriously hit the ball hard. And like <laughs> later they're like, actually that was the manager of the Yankees. Like he's like, seen the greatest in the world. Yeah. And then he's like, but I kinda like it. <laughs> and you're like Fascinating. Okay. Well, but I also he sat there during the lunch and said I'm interested, let me think about it, I'm just starting my lab, so I would bring you in as a part of the foundation of the lab, but I want to make sure I think this through and, and I can really commit to it before I say yes, because I'm not going to string you along. So his integrity from the top was very obvious, 
Yeah, it's the kind of place you could be. So, so, so normal people like us who aren't neuroscientists, if we were to wander the halls at Caltech and, well, I guess if we were to eavesdrop on neuroscientists doing the research, we wouldn't understand a word you're saying, but what would we pick up from the scientist? Is it wonder? Is it curiosity? Is it tenacity? Yes, all of the above. Um, and it's sometimes precision and, and a little obsessiveness. Uh, you know, I want to make sure that I've done the right statistic and I'm really getting at what's going on. But part of what's unique about Caltech is it's a very small school. We have 900 undergrads. And they just happen to be like the 900 smartest undergrads <laughs> <Yeah>. anywhere. Okay. <laughs> Pretty much. And another maybe 1,800 or so graduate students. So we have more graduate students than undergrads. Very small faculty, very few researchers that are full-time, and I'm, I'm research, I'm not full-time faculty. But it's, it's such a small group. We, we don't do huge studies, but we do a lot of interdisciplinary studies. So there's this group of astrophysicists that are very interested in big data and recently wanted to work with us. And so the next thing I know, I'm bringing in all of our autism research data and sitting with the astrophysicists to figure out if their statistical approach is going to inform our... It's just a little wild. <laughs> I feel like you're describing life on another planet. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like it. But I'm teaching abnormal psych. And I'm doing what we did in abnormal psych. And I'm... I mean, they're kids. Yeah. They're trying to find their way. They're, they're really smart kids. But they're like all other human beings, and they're trying to figure out why they're here and who they yeah. are and what they're supposed and to be doing. And how do I use like my... Like all the rest of us. Exactly. What do I do with my time? What do I... What's my career? What are my values? Same questions. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Thank, this has been so extraordinary. I'm cheering you on. Thank you. I, Thank you. I, I pretty much can keep up with what you were saying, almost. <laughs> but I, I, I'm so moved with how you are the smartest of the smart working at this realm that most of us can't even begin to conceive and yet it's driven by this deep desire to help people yeah and i've been very blessed to connect with other people who feel the same way mm -hmm. i mean our lab at caltech is much more interested in the science but there is an appreciation for the participants. There's a respect for mm -hmm. these people are giving of their time and of their disability to help inform the future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think it takes a lot of humility to say, okay, I'll, I'll share myself if it's going to help other people. Mm -hmm. And that's what this community that I work with has done. They pay it forward. Nobody had questions when I had this baby. Let's figure out how we get questions or answers for yeah. these questions. Let's yeah. find out so that other families will have answers. Yeah, and you got to Caltech sitting there doing big data with astrophysicists because you, in your 20s, followed your curiosity. Mm -hmm. And I had the, the luxury of, of following my curiosity. I didn't have to immediately pay back school debt. Yeah, yeah. There were some... There were some big gifts that my family gave me that allowed me to do uh, those things. And I don't take that for granted. Right, right. But the challenge is now here I am 20 some years, 25 years out, and 
the luxury of I want to do what I want to do and I want to study what I want to study is held in the tension of and I've got to support myself and I've got to support and that doesn't really work well. Someone recently said to me, I think of you as this doctor and you've, you know, you're in great shape financially. And I said, I'm a research scientist. Are you kidding? You're at the outer, <laughs> outer cutting edge where there isn't tons of money. No. You're just trying to pay the bills so that you can yeah. do this beautiful thing. It's so inspiring. So my word. Thank you, ladies Rob. and gentlemen, Dr. Lynn Paul. Only on the Robcast, neuroscientists with giant hearts. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rob. Grace and peace, everyone.